0: So if you would join me in our scripture reading this morning, it is from Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 through 30. This can be found on page 830 in the Pew Bible. We also ask that if you don't have a Bible, please take one of the Pew Bibles home as our gift to you. So once again, Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, "Master." Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take, the ta- so take the talent from him and give it to him, he who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." This is the Word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kelly, for reading Scripture for us. And um, We didn't plan this, but uh, it's a great text for a public accountant to read, right? Um, Money and accounting for and all that. So, um, I want to begin this morning as we do uh, each morning um, by just praying and asking God to help us to understand His Word, for Him to be at work, uh, that these would be uh, more than uh, words on paper, but that they would truly transform our lives, and that only happens when God's Spirit is at work uh, in our hearts, making His Word alive uh, in our in our lives. And so, I want to pray and ask that He would do that now. Um, Father in heaven, we're thankful that You have spoken to us and that You um, have sent Your Son and You have given us Your Spirit that uh, makes us new, that brings new life, um, and that is in the process always of changing us. And so, whether… We are here this morning having um, never heard this passage of Scripture before in our lives, um, not knowing anything really about Jesus, or we've grown up hearing these texts and they're so familiar. I pray that you would bring something new and fresh for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the spring, which we're entering into here, it already feels like spring today. Um, usually I wait till kind of after Easter to bring out like the, the pastels, but it's such a nice day. Um, today. But in springtime at Christ Community is uh, annual performance review time. And so it's the time of the year when we, um, all of us who are on staff, have our, our annual reviews. And I just got an email from our HR director last week just reminding us of the, the process for that and, and that that work is going to be beginning soon. And I imagine that, that most of us at one point or another in life has received some kind of review in our work, whether our work is, is paid or unpaid, whether we're, we're students or stay-at-home parents. Um, and, and if you are a student, you actually have performance reviews all the time, right? You probably wish you had fewer of them. You have tests and homework and quizzes and papers. All the time, you're, you're being reviewed on your work. Um, in the workplace, they don't call them tests or quizzes. They just call them performance management or something like that. But, but the point is the same, right, that we receive feedback, um, we are evaluated on our work that we've done, and, and sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. Um, but the best bosses and the best teachers and the best colleagues, they, they not only want us to succeed, they, they push us and they help us to grow, to, to be the very best that we can be given our abilities and our gifts. And in this passage in Matthew. Jesus tells us a story, a parable, about workers receiving a performance review. And the point of the story is that that every one of us will receive a review from our Creator and our Redeemer. Now, we may bristle at this idea. That idea may frighten us. Um, I don't think any of us, there's part of all of us that, that doesn't like the idea of being accountable and I think partially because we've had bad bosses. We've had unfair teachers in the past, right? And, and we know that, that we don't always get evaluated on, on the true quality of, of our work, and yet as much as we dislike the idea of being accountable to someone else, I don't think that we can escape the sense that we ought to be rewarded for good work. That when we've done good work in the classroom, in the workplace, in child rearing, in our volunteering that that ought to be in some way acknowledged and rewarded for the goodness that it is. However, that kind of reward and affirmation that we all long for is only possible if there's an evaluation. We can only be meaningfully rewarded if we are accountable, if we're subject to the review of another who can say, good work. And imagine the frustration of a student who worked hard on a paper. Slaved on it over the entire semester, taking care to to craft it and to research it, only to turn it in at the end of the semester and have the professor choose not to read it or to grade it. How disappointing, how frustrating that would be. Maybe you've had this experience in school, I know I have, that you studied hard for days, even weeks maybe, for an exam that was coming, a midterm or a final, only to have the professor cancel the exam, you know, at the last minute. And in that moment, you're never too angry, right? You're always a little relieved the exam is canceled But there's also a part of you, if you were one of the students who had worked really hard studying, if you didn't study, you're just relieved. But if you had worked hard studying, it kind of feels a little cheated, right? I I invested all this time, and now I don't get to show anything for it. Well, in this parable this morning, Jesus assures us that this will not be the case with our lives. They will not be meaningless. They will not go unevaluated. The exam will not be canceled So all of your work and study and preparation will not be in the end for nothing. And Jesus shows us this morning that we will be evaluated on our faithfulness that is revealed in our fruitfulness. That we'll be evaluated on on our faithfulness that, that is revealed in our fruitfulness. And in this parable we see three things that we must embrace If we are to live lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness, and we will see them one by one as we walk through the story that Jesus tells, the first thing that we see here is that if we're going to live lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness, the first thing that we must embrace is the reality, the truth, that no one wants you to succeed more than God. No one wants you to succeed more in faithfulness and fruitfulness than God Himself. So let me show you this. Look again at verses 14 and 15 if you have the pew Bible open still, or you can look on the screen here. But Jesus begins, He says, for it, and that it refers to the kingdom of God. He's picking that language up from the previous parable. For it, the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. So did you catch that language at the end? It's it's vital to understanding the whole thing, but we often skip over it. It says, the master gave to each according to his ability. He gave them according to their ability, according to their, their giftedness, according to their strengths. You see, the master in the story, he's the very best of bosses. He knows each one of his people well. He knows their strengths, their weaknesses. He knows their abilities. He's a great leader, a great manager of people. He knows their abilities, and he he signs them work and align with those abilities. You see, no one in this story wants these servants to succeed more than their master. He knows their abilities, and He he hasn't placed on them something greater than what they're they're able to do according to the abilities that they have. He hasn't called them to John Brewer. John Brewer is our our worship pastor, if you're new, he's a phenomenal musician. He hasn't called them to John Brewer-like musical fruitfulness and then given them Bill Gorman-like musical ability. (laughs) He knows their abilities. He knows their strengths, and He's assigned them work in line with that. So, yes, and like every good boss, every good teacher, he'll, he'll, he stretches them to draw out their potential. But he will not call them to do or to be more than they are designed for. He gives them responsibility in alignment with their ability. He gives them responsibility in alignment with their abilities. Now, in the story, the master represents Jesus, And Jesus is the ultimate amazing teacher. He's the ultimate incredible boss. He's made you. He's created you. He knew you before the foundation of the earth. He he knows you inside out and upside down. He knows your strengths, your weaknesses, all of them. And as he prepares to go to the cross in just a couple of days, that's where we're at in the story of Jesus, in just a few days after Jesus tells this parable, he will die on the cross And he teaches disciples and and us how to live lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness in the time in between his his resurrection and his second coming in the future. He teaches us how to be faithful in our obedience until his return. And no one wants us to succeed more in that than than Jesus. No one is, is cheering louder for your success And what he's called you to do than the one who's called you to do it i think often we can have this this perception of of god of who's just looking for us to make a mistake he just can't can't wait for us to mess up but in the gospel i couldn't be further from the truth jesus is your biggest cheerleader in the work that he's given you to do he longs for you to be faithful and fruitful. No one longs for that more than he does. And in the story that Jesus tells, the master gives to each of these three servants a certain amount of talents. Now, when we hear the word talent today, we typically think of as sort of natural ability, right? So she's such a talented basketball player. He's such a talented violinist. And, and the usage of that word in, in that way that we talk about now in terms of natural ability Uh, It actually derives from this parable. But the word talent here is actually a unit of measurement, a a measure of weight or money. And so the owner of the story is giving each servant a sum of of money to manage and to invest and to make a return on. One talent was equal to perhaps maybe 20 years worth of the wages of a day laborer. So that's a, a vast sum. So even the, the servant who's only given one talent is still given an incredibly large amount to manage. Now, we have to remember here that Jesus is using money as a symbol in the parable. The, the talent, the money that each servant's entrusted with is a symbol of all that we have been entrusted with. Our bodies, our minds, our, our money, our abilities, our social position, our spiritual gifts. Everything that we have, our education is symbolized in the story by this money. But it's important to remember that because Jesus isn't preaching a prosperity gospel. We know that, right? And, And sometimes the most vocationally productive people are not always the most financially prosperous, right? For example, you may be an incredibly productive and faithful and effective elementary school teacher, You're probably not going to become independently wealthy doing that. But on the other hand, you can be an altogether average professional athlete and and still make quite a bit of money. You see, it's not that Jesus is not concerned with our money. He is. He certainly talks a lot about money and wealth. It's just that what he evaluates is not our net worth, but our net productivity, our, our fruitfulness which may or may not result in a large amount of financial gain in this life. You see, each of these servants is entrusted with an incredible privilege and responsibility to make the most of the gifts their master has given to them. He's given to them according to their ability. And again, nobody wants them to succeed more than the master because the resources that he's given them, right, they're his. He has a vested interest in seeing them succeed because they're, they're His resources. When they succeed, the Master succeeds. So if you're going to live a life of faithfulness revealed in fruitfulness, we must embrace the reality that no one is more eager for your fruitfulness, for your success, for your faithfulness than the one who made you, who redeemed you, who has given to you according to your ability. So we must understand that that no one wants us to succeed more than God. We also must embrace the reality that there are few things more destructive than sloth. There are few things more destructive than sloth. We see that the greatest hindrance to a life of faithfulness, revealed in fruitfulness, according to Jesus in this parable, is a thing called sloth. Notice how this works here. Look again at the passage beginning at verse 16. Jesus continues telling the story. He said, he who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. And so also, he who had two talents made two talents more. Just pause there for a second. The first two servants immediately, they go, they serve, they multiply, they're they're creative in the work. And then there's a huge contrast, verse 18, but, but he had received the one talent, still a vast sum of money, went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So, the first two servants, they go at once immediately, and they're off. They they wasted no time they engage in commerce. They're, they're obedient to the master. They find creative ways of multiplying what the master has given them. They're faithful. But the third servant, he, he goes away and buries the talent in the ground. He does nothing with it. He doesn't even seem to, to care all that much. And then the text uses this language, Jesus' uses this language, of after a long time, Jesus is preparing us for the amount of time that's going to pass between his resurrection and his second coming. After a long time, he returns, and he's prepared to settle accounts with his servants. And this is where the passage really begins to get interesting. So listen uh, as we keep reading here in in verse 20. And he who had received five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So, so far, so good. The two faithful servants reveal their faithfulness and and the fruitfulness of their work, the multiplication of the work that they've done. And their master is delighted. Well done, he declares. And they're welcomed into his joy, and they're given greater responsibility. They're promoted. They're entrusted with more. But then it's time for the third servant to report. So let's keep reading verse 24. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Just pause right there. The master calls the third servant wicked and slothful. That's a pretty stark contrast, right, to good and faithful. Now we're at wicked and slothful. Rather than taking what he had been entrusted with and making something of it, the servant just buried it in the ground. He doesn't give it even the opportunity to earn just a minimum amount of interest. Now, maybe you would argue he's just playing it safe. And it's true that banks such as they were during that time were were pretty risky, and it probably was more secure just to put it in the ground and I mean, sometimes I even feel that today, right, that maybe some money under the mattress is more secure than like the bits and bytes of my online banking account. Um, But to take that line of reasoning in the parable is to miss the point, because the master gave to the servant because he had ability to do something with it more than just keep it buried in the ground. He gave to each of them according to their ability. This this servant had ability to do something more with this talent than just to bury it. He saw something in that servant when he entrusted him with this money. I mean, if all he wanted to do was just keep that money safe, the the master could have buried it in the ground himself. But no, he, he knew that this servant had the ability to do something more with it than that but he's slothful. And in fact, he's so slothful that he blames the master for his failure. He makes an excuse like, well, you're such a tough boss and and I was afraid of you, so it's your fault that I didn't do more with this. But the master, he sees right through this. He doesn't buy it for a second. He says, no, 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 no. If you really thought I was that tough of a boss, you would have at least put it in the bank to earn interest. No, it's not that you were scared. It's not that you were scared. It's that you're slothful. You didn't care enough to do anything with this. If you were really scared, you would have put it in the bank. That's his point. He wasn't scared. He just didn't care. See, sloth here is pictured as the greatest barrier to a life of faithfulness that is revealed in fruitfulness. But what is sloth, really? Because when I think of sloth, I tend to think of of laziness, right? Like just sitting on the couch and not doing anything. And and, and that's certainly one of the ways that sloth can manifest itself, kind of just laziness. But the heart of sloth is not laziness. The heart of sloth is not laziness, it's apathy. Basically, sloth is the spiritual condition of no longer giving a rip. Just not caring anymore, being apathetic. Listen to how cultural commentator Oz Guinness explains what sloth is. He's so helpful here. Sloth is more than indolence or physical laziness. In fact, it can reveal itself in frenetic activism as easily as in lethargy because its roots are spiritual rather than physical. It is a condition of explicitly spiritual dejection that has given up on the pursuit of God, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Sloth is inner despair at the worthwhileness worthwhileness of the worthwhile that finally slumps into an attitude of who cares. Again, he sort of lays out then three ways in which sloth is a unique challenge for those of us living in the modern Western world And and the first reason that it's a challenge for us, he says, in the modern Western world is because we live in a cultural context, whether or not we consider ourselves a religious person, irreligious person, a believer or not a believer, we live in a broader cultural context in which belief in God, in particular the belief that we're accountable to God for our actions, is just not something that's widely believed. And so even if you are a Christian, it's easy to slip into the mentality of kind of a closed framework, that God doesn't really exist, that He's not really going to evaluate my life one day. And and the result of that is a slow sort of eroding of meaning in our life, a, a disenchantment of our world. And again, this is true whether or not we consider ourselves Christian, because these are the waters in which we all swim. They affect us deeply, whether we're aware of it or not. It's just kind of a sense of a loss of meaning that can lead to a malaise, a slothfulness. Second, and this is fascinating to me, Guinness points out that, that we're particularly susceptible to sloth because of advances in technology and medicine and industry in our culture. Those things have made life a lot easier. That's a good thing. But they also make us much more susceptible to sloth. Listen to how Guinness explains this. He says when life is safe, easy, sanitized, climate controlled, and plush, sloth is close. He says the most compulsive of shoppers and channel surfers move from feeling good to feeling nothing. Move from feeling good to feeling nothing. And third, he, he explains that sloth is easier to fall into the, the older we get. He says at the beginning of our careers and our families, we're, we're energized, we're pursuing it hard, but the older we get, the more established we become in our careers. As we send children out into adulthood, it becomes easier and easier to coast and then to become complacent and finally to stop caring that much at all. Perhaps the most powerful statement of sloth that I've ever come across is from one of C.S. Lewis's contemporaries and good friend, uh, his Dorothy Sayers, feel the weight and impact of what she writes here about sloth. Sloth is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing that it would die for. After we finish the Gospel of Matthew, studying through that on Sunday mornings, that's going to take us through Easter, we're actually going to spend some time talking about uh, virtues and vices. And as I've already begun doing some study in that area, I've realized that that sloth is an incredible area of temptation and and, and weakness for me, the temptation to to not deeply care about my work for the work's sake, to subtly begin to treat it as only a means of, of getting comfort. You see, it's easy to work really hard at your vocation. That's the thing. Sloth doesn't only manifest itself in in laziness. It can manifest itself in in frenetic activity. It's easy to work really hard in your vocation to to not be lazy at all, but to be slothful. Because you're simply using that work as a means of of getting home at the end of the day and being able to watch Netflix or, or go on vacation, now, there's nothing wrong with Netflix or going on vacation. I'm even excited to do both regularly. But Netflix and vacation are not big enough goals to live for, much less to die for. And the consequences of sloth that just begins to subtly not care, to be apathetic, are dire indeed. Listen to how the story ends. It's sobering, to say the least. Verse 30, the final verse of the parable. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, see, this may strike us as harsh. I think if you stop and, and think about it for a minute, I think we all recognize that this is what a good boss would do. When someone is sabotaging the company or the organization, they they have to be let go, right? I mean, imagine a a, a teacher who's slothful, apathetic. They They don't care about their students, and they just put in videos in class each day, and they don't bother to teach, and they don't grade the homework, and just kind of pass students through whether they're learning or not. And they do this year after year, class after class, and so, you know, imagine if this is a reading teacher or a math teacher early on, and those students never learn, and so they struggle throughout the rest of their academic careers, maybe even not throughout the rest of their lives, because they didn't get a good education as a result of this teacher who just didn't care. What does a good principal do with that teacher? A good principal says that you've got to go. You, you can't be trusted with something good, with the responsibility of investing in the lives of these students. You have to go. Beware that sloth does not erode your faithfulness and fruitfulness. Because faithfulness is impossible without fruitfulness. And this is the third truth that that we must embrace. And this is what Jesus is driving at in this parable, that that our faithfulness and our obedience to Him is revealed in our fruitfulness, and the the productivity of our lives. And there's this distortion, I think, that happens sometimes in Christian circles that, that tends to talk about faithfulness only in terms of what we don't do. So when we begin to talk about faithfulness, often in kind of a pietistic way, we define it in terms of what we don't do. So I was faithful. I I didn't cheat on my wife. I was faithful. I I never stole anything from anybody. I I was faithful. I never cheated on my time card. But here's the thing. Faithfulness isn't just about what we don't do. I mean, it's great that you never cheated on your wife, but did you sacrificially love her? It's great that you never stole anything from everybody, anybody, but were you radically generous? I mean, it's great that you never cheated on your time card, but were you an outstanding employee who contributed to the good of your company and to the care of your neighbors through your good and excellent work? Makes me think of the, the first superintendent of the National Park Service in the United States. Stephen Mather. And Mather, as a young man, made a, a huge fortune, and he was just an incredibly industrious and energetic person. And after he made this, this fortune, he, he turned his focus to the establishment and improvement of America's national parks, some of our greatest treasures as a nation. And he worked tirelessly, energetically throughout his life. If you've ever visited a national park, um, you probably directly experienced the influence Of Stephen Mather. And when he died, his legacy was so great that now in every single national park in the nation, there's a plaque with his likeness on it, and and there's an inscription on it that concludes with these words, there will never come an end to the good that he has done. There will never come an end to the good that he has done. I don't know about Stephen Mather's faith he certainly was given a great amount of ability. At least in his vocation, he was faithful to that. But it may be long. Would, would those words be said over my life, over your life? Not Maybe we haven't been given the kind of ability of, of Stephen Mather. He was a pretty unique person in that. But in alignment with the ability that we've been entrusted with, would someone... Maybe it's only our Savior will know this because oftentimes our lives are lived in quiet obscurity, but be able to say of us, there will never come an end to the good that he or she has done. When we receive our performance evaluation from Jesus, He won't just ask us what we didn't do. He wants to see that we're bearing fruit in what we are doing. And in John chapter 15 Jesus is speaking to His disciples during the final week of His life, just a couple of days after He tells this parable, and He tells them that if they're going to bear fruit, they must abide in Him, like a grape branch must abide in the vine if it's going to produce grapes. And in that chapter, Jesus points out that there is a fruitfulness of intimacy with him. There's a relationship with him. The relationship always comes first. This is the great paradox of of Christianity, that the, the greatest way to fruitfulness and productivity in a spiritual reality is to not try harder, but to rest in and abide in Jesus. So I love that song we sang earlier. Keep me abiding that I might bear fruit. Not help me to work harder that I might bear fruit, but keep me abiding. There's a fruitfulness of intimacy there's also a fruitfulness of character that as we abide in Jesus that we learn to obey and that we become more like him that we begin to look more and more like Jesus in his faithfulness and his kindness and his love and his joy and his mercy and his compassion fruitfulness of character and then there is this fruitfulness of productivity in our work and in all of life and our relationships you know all the way back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 the very first chapters of the bible We see that we are made in the image of a creative and working God to be workers, to be fruitful, yes, in in procreation, but also in in vocational productivity. Adam and Eve were not only to populate the earth with children, with image bearers. That wasn't the end goal. The the end goal was to do that in order that they could be productive in shaping the world that God had entrusted them with as His co-rulers. It is impossible then to argue that we have lived a faithful life if we have lived a fruitless life. Now again, the, the caution here is that we may not always see the fruit here and now. It's especially important as we look at the lives of others. Our role is not to judge other people on how much fruitfulness we see or don't see. Because sometimes the, the fruitfulness of intimacy and character oftentimes go unseen, unnoticed, in the obscurity of life. But they will be noted and celebrated by Jesus. And the work we do now and how we do that work will profoundly shape what we will do in the future, in the new heavens, and the new earth. And this infuses great meaning into our lives now. Our, our lives are not meaningless. Jesus clearly seems to indicate in this parable that that how we do our work and how we live our lives now affects how we will spend our lives in the new heavens and the new earth with him. You aren't just killing time waiting for Jesus to come back. You're faithfully serving him now. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was perfectly faithful and abundantly fruitful. And that when we place our faith and trust in Him, His record of absolute perfect faithfulness and unimaginable fruitfulness is attributed to us. And it is true that grace is not opposed to effort. We are called to exert great effort in, main, in maintaining faithfulness and being productive and fruitful in our lives. But all of that effort is only a response to, is only empowered by the gift of grace that makes us whole. Because you see, no amount of effort on our part could ever earn our acceptance before him. We simply receive Jesus' invitation to abide in him. And when we receive him, fruitfulness is just the result. We we, we can't do anything else but if you're obedient to Jesus, if you follow him, if you trust him, if you obey him, you will bear fruit. You can't do anything else. Again, that's the great paradox of the Christian life. It's not about sort of trying harder, but abiding more deeply in Jesus. Because you see, the one who died for you longs to say well done over you. The one who died for you, he longs to say well done over you. and To have you enter his joy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you make us people who are faithful to you and fruitful in intimacy and character and in productivity. Would you teach us to abide in you and so to be truly fruitful in our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.